Welcome to this episode of Heartland Podcast. The conversation you're about to hear is between the world-renowned author Salman Rushdie and famous art creator and critic Hans Ulrich Orbrist. The conversation took place in front of a live audience on the talk scene on last year's Heartland Festival. In this talk, the two participants discuss identity and belonging, and mainly how a sense of belonging to an ethnicity, group, religion or nationality is important to our identity. A sense of belonging can take many forms, especially in a globalized and digitalized modern world where some feel that their sense of belonging isn't in the general society, but to a greater extent, online communities and subcultures. Both Rushdie and Aubrist have dealt with identity throughout their careers. Salman Rushdie is Indian-born, he studied in UK and now lives in US. His diverse background is often portrayed in his authorship, which often deals with identity and the sense of cultural belonging. Hans Ulrich Orbrist has dealt with identity throughout his curating of different art projects, but additionally he has, throughout his career, interviewed over 500 artists, authors and scientists, where the themes often deal with identity and belonging in some sense. The conversation is moderated by Danish author Barbara Lesø Stephenson. We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Heartland Podcast. Well, I'm so glad that someone else made that introduction of you because that will save us like half an hour of uh, this conversation that I don't have to list up all the merits and all the places of importance where the two of you belong. So, and I think it actually make me, uh, give me the opportunity to start somewhere else, more playful perhaps, and ask you a question of real curiosity. Salman Rushdie, you are uh, at the tip of everyone's tongue once again because of your new book, The Golden House, which is just coming out in Denmark. You've been on tour with it already, I think, for half a year, and I don't think there's a person in the world who wouldn't like to have you here in the couch, and obviously there's a few people here that are thrilled too, <laughs> that you chose to come to Heartland and participate in this different scene, not uh, the traditional book tour, but in a conversation with someone from the art world. Well, I just I have to say, it's a little bit sad that nobody came. Yes, I know. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> But thank you, the half a dozen of you who showed up. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, the truth is I was here, uh, actually here at the castle a couple of years ago ah. because I was visiting Denmark and, and, and Michael Allerfeld kindly hosted a dinner for me mm. here. And it was actually just after the very first Heartland Festival. So I remember even then he was telling me, you have to come, etc. So I do everything he says. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Hans-Ulrich Obrist, you are a man of traveling. You are a wanted person all over the world as well. How did you convince yourself or how did, that it was important to come to this little spot on Earth? Uh, with all the difficulties it takes just to get here and all the time that's so precious for you. Why did you come? Yeah, I'm delighted to be here and very grateful to Rasmus and uh, his team and to you, you know, for the invitation to speak here. It was very exciting uh, to continue the dialogue with Salman, which began actually through an artist, mm -hmm. the artist Tarin Simon, 
who a couple of years ago introduced us to each other. And of course, I believe a lot in conversations. I believe a lot in conversations between disciplines. I think can only address the big issues of the 21st century if we go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge. So I think it's immensely exciting that here so many disciplines meet. And actually, I, I heard you say at one point uh, back in time that conversation is important because conversation creates reality. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I've always believed, you know, as a curator, basically everything I do comes out of conversations with artists. And, you know, I ask artists always about their dreams, their unrealized projects, and then try to help them to, you know, to realize them. So that's already, in a way, a production of reality. And then, of course, you know, more and more I started to extend that also to other fields. And I think, you know, curating is making junctions. So when you install an exhibition, you make junctions between art objects, between, you know, non-objects, between installations. You bring works together. But I think it's also junction making between people. And I think, you know, curating involves a lot of, um, you know, bringing people together. And it's something I always try to do, bringing science, literature, music, art, architecture together. And that often then, you know, unleashes or triggers processes and can produce reality. So it's yeah. one thing is it can create an actual exhibition in your part. I know that you have uh, interviewed more than 500, uh, I think, by now, of our time's biggest thinkers, architects, and indeed uh, contemporary artists. Uh, so, but one thing is the exhibition. Do you believe in this notion, too, that language or, say, conversation can create re reality, that it's not a mere representation of something that's... I mean, I really so much agree with Hans Ulrich that you have to get out of your own little box. Mm. You know, and... Um, I mean, one of the great things about living in New York City is that, is that everybody's box collides with everybody else's box. You know? yeah. So there's no, there's no room to live in separate boxes. And I've always been, I thought myself very fortunate to have friends and connections with, with people in many other art forms. I mean, I remember in the early 80s in London, there was, uh, there was, several, there was a festival of India in London, and many Indian painters were in town. And, and there was a, a, an event where people of Indian origin living in the, in the UK, artists write, and writers, and, uh, were brought together with these, this group of artists coming from India. And it was just one of the most brilliant days of my life. You know, I, I learned so much. I made deep friendships, and, and many of them I mean, my novel, The Moor's Last Sigh, was in many ways made possible by the people that I met that day. Mm. You know? And I've also always, I mean, I have a great, anybody who reads this book will see that I have an obsession with film. And, and so I've also had, you know, that interest in crossing that boundary. So yeah, I think it's, I have to tell you a funny story that when I was 21 years old, 20 years old, in the so-called summer of love, <laughs> I, was, I was living in London in the summer vacation, upstairs from the most fashionable boutique of the King's Road, which was called Granny Takes a Trip. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I a went metaphor, in, I suppose. I went into the boutique to introduce myself to this ferocious young woman who was the person in the boutique. And I, I said, you know, hi, you know, I'm, I'm Salman, I live upstairs, I just thought I'd come and say hello. <laughs> and she looked at me with contempt. <laughs> And she said this unforgettable thing. She looked, she said, conversation's dead, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that.
that that won't uh, happen today. I, I kind of feel already, after having met you just backstage, yeah. that this conversation will not oh, die. It was such a horrifying idea. <laughs> <laughs> that it would ever stop. But uh, I feel grateful also for someone else doing the introduction, because in light of the question that we have today, that we have somehow to try to answer together today, does belonging really, is belonging really crucial to identity? There's also, I realized, a kind of hardship for the one who's doing the presenting, because that means also choosing what identity mm. to present and the choices to make about what to include in that presentation. Mm. And I think the one who brought this to my mind is an artist from South Africa called Candice Bright. She was representing, as it's called, South Africa at the Venice Biennale, a big encounter of art from all over the world. It happens every second year in Venice, and uh, where every uh, country, including Denmark, or many countries, have a pavilion in which they present the best of uh, their country's art at that moment, chosen by a curator, could be someone like Hans Ulrich. And um, she presented a piece of work, and I'd like to show just a bit of it to spark up this conversation. Can we have clip number one with Candice Bright? I'm coming up. I want the world to know, I'm gonna let it show. My name is Candice Breitz. My middle name is Lonely. I'm a kind of a South African. I was born Muslim to Muslim parents. I was born in Kimberley in 1983. I was born on a Friday during lunchtime as the call to prayer was sounded from the local mosque. I currently live in the whitest place in Africa, Cape Town. My ancestors are Scots, Afrikaners, and Latvian Jews. My ancestors come from Mesopotamia. My ancestors are sometimes white and short. My mother is a secretary. My father is a big dreamer. I'm an artist and I... Okay, I'll try it one more, one different way. Sorry. <laughs> My name is Candice Bright. I am an artist. I am more or less straight. I like men. I'm a mainly straight woman. I've had sex with men and with women, but I do prefer some dick. I am a woman. No, this is not right. One more. Let me do it one more time. <laughs> Sorry. My name is Candy Spreitz. My middle name is Privilege. I am South African. I was born in Litchfield, England in 1941. I live mostly in Johannesburg. My ancestors are Shana, Zulu, Xhosa, and Debele. I speak four languages. It's Xhosa, it's Zulu, English, and Afrikaans. My mother tongue is supposed to be Afrikaans, although I feel alienated by it. I speak mostly English, and I understand Afrikaans. I speak in a visual language. My language is from the mind. I am an artist, and my mother hates it. My mother is a soldier by nature. I am an artist, and my father hates it. My father is a reformed homophobe. I am an artist and I sometimes hate it. My name is Candy Breitz. I live somewhere between reality and a mystical world. <laughs> My nationality is planet Earth. I am a person of faith. I believe in nature. I am a virgin. Does it really matter? Isn't that a sexual preference? In terms of class, I'm not quite sure where I fit in, to be honest. I am climbing my way to middle class. I am in a class of my own. In terms of race, I consider myself politically black, culturally colored. I have been socialized at white. I am told I am politically black. I am white. 
I am the colour of skin. I am dark white. I am skin coloured. I am learning to fuck the white in me. My name is Gandhi Spates. I present South Africa. I miss South Africa. I miss South Africa. I represent South Africa. I'm misrepresent. I misrepresent South Africa. I'm misrepresentation. There's no such thing as representation. My name is Candice Blakes. I'm South African. And I approve this message. I'm coming. I'm coming up. Do, do, do. I think somehow it addresses a lot of the issues yeah. of belonging in connection to good, identity. A good film, really very good, I think. Um, it said a lot of things that we might agree with, but I, mean, I think you could maybe even reverse the question mm-hmm. that was up here, which is not about whether belonging is essential to identity, but whether identity is essential to belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because it seems to me all of us belong to something or somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, all of us belong to, I don't know, our children, you know, I mean, um, or whatever, however you might define that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a great, profound issue of identity. You know? um, and I also think the way the word identity is used nowadays creates a number of problems, you know? um, which is one of the things I tried to write about in this, in this book. Um, and it's used differently in different places. You know. So, so in, in India, um, when people talk about identity, they're mainly talking about religious identity. You know, and and it, it centers around a kind of Hindu-Muslim conflict mm-hmm. um, uh, in which the, the kind of Hindu supremacist idea is that only, only Hindu reality is authentic Indian reality, you know, and that everybody else is in some way inauthentic. Um, in England, in recent years, as we all know, there has been this crisis created by a, a deep division about what it means to be British, you know, about what, what is a national identity. And in America now, I think pr- primarily identity centers around racial issues and gender issues. Mm-hmm, exactly. you know, so, so it means different things in different places. But in all places, I th- sometimes think it's an attempt to narrow our self-definition. And it's tempted to say that we are just like one thing, you know. And and actually, we, none of us. One of the things that the art of the novel has always known is that nobody is one thing. We're all 25 things, or 125 things, and many of those are in conflict with each other. You know, um, do I contradict myself? Walt Whitman said, "Very well, then I contradict myself." You know, and and I think that this this narrowing effect of an identity issue. Of the, of the identity issue is, is a real problem for me. And, and I see belonging in, in much wider terms. You know, I mean, I, we were talking back there about how our first love is for cities, mm. not, not, for, not for countries. And, and in my life, there have been three very important cities, which are Bombay, London, and New York. And I feel a deep sense of connection to them, you know, to, to New York much more than to the United States of America, you know, to London much more than to the UK, and to Bombay much more than to India. You know? mm-hmm. so, so I start there with the, with the, the local, the local you know, and, and then one can expand that to the, 
to the general and the universal. Cities is definitely a topic of your interest too. Yeah, I agree. And it sort of made me think what you just said of, you know, Benedict Anderson, mm. uh, who, whom you met and whom I sadly never got to know, who wrote this amazing text about, you know, nations, countries being kind of imaginary constructs and uh, uh, scaling it down to cities. And for me also, it really all connects to cities. You know, many exhibitions I did, like Cities on the Move with 200, have to do with cities. And I also have, you know, three cities in a way. There was Zurich, where I was born. And art through, you know, seeing Giacometti, the long thin figure of Giacometti, the epiphany with art, and, you know, the myth. So it's also uh, three cities. But I think there's so many uh, connections in terms of the amazing video we just saw to the Golden House, but also to Salman's Midnight's Children, you know, about this idea of uh, us being many, you know, of this idea of multiple identities. And I think, for me, I, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about Edouard Glissant. I don't know if... Uh, it's translated in Denmark, but I've always been very obsessed. He should be. I know Johannes. Who has read Edouard Glissant? Who is familiar with the Martinique writer Edouard Glissant? This, yeah. is, this is why it's so urgent, because in a way, <laughs> yeah. for me, he is the great toolbox, uh, one of the great toolboxes to address these questions um, for the 21st century. He was born in Martinique in 1928 and, you know, called attention to means of global exchange, to not homogenize and basically found concepts like mondialité, so how we can actually engage with global dialogue uh, and not fall into this counter-reaction to globalization, which leads to new forms of you know, nationalism, to new forms of racism. So his concept of mondialité, I think, is an amazing toolbox. And he also... How can we translate mondialité? We can't really. No, it's, it's, it, there's not really a word. One, one could sort of maybe call it mondiality. It needs a neologism. What it really is, is because uh, Glissant early on uh, understood that the homogenizing forces of globalization will lead to extinction. They will lead to uh, crises on many levels. Languages disappear. Susan Hiller made a very beautiful movie where she shows us how many languages disappear mm -hmm. in the world. But he also saw not only that that will lead to extinction, but he saw that it will lead to a counter-reaction. And that's the counter-reaction we see in so many countries now of, of, of basically a lack of solidarity uh, and all of that. So he said we need that third way. We need a global dialogue which produces difference and does not homogenize. I mean, it's very interesting what you say about Glissant because I think one of the things that's happened in the French language is that many of the most interesting writers, much of the most interesting work being done in the Francophonie is, is now being done by writers who are not white French people, mm. you know, who are black French people. You know, that's to say, writers like Glissant from the Caribbean or like um, Alain Mabankou from, from the Congo, etc. And I mean, there's an energy in that which is perhaps lacking in some orthodox conventional French writing. Um, I think, of, think one of the things that's really interesting that's happening in American literature right now is the rise of a younger generation than mine um, with immigrant roots from everywhere in the world. You know, that's to say it used to be that immigrant literature in America meant either Eastern European Jewish immigration mm -hmm. or Southern European Italian immigration. You know, uh, but now, you know, you have Jhumpa Lahiri from South Asia, you have Nam Le from Vietnam, you have Yi Yun Li from China, you have, um, you know, Juno Diaz from the Dominican Republic, you have, um, et cetera, et cetera. And all these new narratives, these new ways of telling stories, new histories from elsewhere are being brought into American literature and, in my view, really enriching it, you know? And, and um, 
It's the opposite, if you like, of nationalism. But is it not still what I wonder is, could we see slide number two, please? This is a typical just snapshot from the art world. Uh, Hansula, you will recognize this. Just a plain sign being next to uh, an exhibit, uh, an image, a painting, a sculpture, whatever. And the first thing it will tell us uh, is, of course, what are we looking the name. At? I can't see. Uh, and then the information, what type, where were they born, mm. what time, what age were they born in, and where do they live? Mm. And is it not still quite limiting in the art world, the, the way to present each other by the first place of belonging, place of birth, and place of where you live? Should not the art world be a place where you are indeed free of those I denominators? Mean, I don't know. I could, I could argue that both ways. You know, because I know that for me, in my work, that the sense of place is very important. You know, that, that un until I know exactly where a story is going to take place, at in what time and place and class and community, mm. until I know those things, the wheels don't turn. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to make it happen. So I have, you know, I've always, you know, I start with place. Yes. You know? so, so in that case, I would accept that definition. You know what I mean? Um, but clearly my own life has been spent bouncing around between a lot of places, you know, and I, and I also like that, that liberty, you know, and the, and the gifts that that gives you. That place can, of course, be many things. It yeah. does not necessarily have to be, you know, a country. It can be, as Glissant so beautifully says, you know, in Darko et du Lamentin, one of his last books, he, he describes a rock in, in Martinique, and he thinks about, you know, from the perspective of this rock, and, and talks about it. It's very interesting, because I think it ties in with um, what you just said so beautifully about these different authors, that it's actually no longer a question of a continental literature, but it's an archipelago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to read I this quote here. I want to translate archipelago. Okay? I, I can't even translate it, but in, it's a beautiful uh, word that will um, really s sing with this audience, because in Danish it's uhau, and that is exactly where we are very close What's to. What's the word in Danish? Uhau. Very simple. It's a sea with a lot of small islands that are really attached deep down, mm -hmm. but they are detached yeah. at the water surface. It's very important, yeah, to, to it's that it's about uhau, <laughs> uh, and, that it's, and that it's not about this idea of a continental idea, because as you know, Glissant says, you know, continents are homogenizing. And there's a very beautiful quote here. Uh, Glissant told me in one of the many conversations we had, the American archipelagos are extremely important, uh, and that's the island he describes, you know, Martinique and all the islands around. Uh, the American archipelagos are extremely important because it was in these islands that the idea of creolization, that is the blend of cultures, was most brilliantly fulfilled. Continents reject mixings, whereas archipelic thought, or we could say uhau thought, makes it possible to say that neither each person's identity nor the collective identity are fixed and established once and for all. I can change through the exchange you know, with all of you without losing or diluting my sense of self. Mm. And it's the archipelic thought that teaches us this. Yeah. I, mean, I think you know, every great metropolis now is an archipelago of that kind. You, know, that's how? you, you walk down the streets of any of the great cities of the world and you meet everywhere else in the world. You know, everywhere else in the world is, is pushing past you in the street, you know. Um, and the stories of everywhere are moving amongst each other, you know. And 
And I've always asked myself from very early days, from the time of Midnight's Children, is if the obvious fact about the city is the crowd, how do you represent a crowd? Mm. How do you represent a crowd which is many-voiced, many-tongued, many, many you know, um, and with every history you can imagine? And yet there they all are on the same street, you know? And how do you tell that story? Mm. You know, and, and one of the solutions I've often found is to literally overcrowd the text, <laughs> you know, to tell too many stories, you know, to, uh, so that your main story is there, of course, but it, but it sort of has to push its way through the crowd. <laughs> and you pass other stories, which if you were to write differently, that story could be a book of its own, but you're not going that way, you're going this way. You know? and, and to try and represent the city and this kind of multiple nature of the world we now live in, you know, uh, in some way in literature. You know? That sounds a bit like you do exhibitions. Yeah, it's very, I mean, this could be a description of, uh, uh, in terms of, you know, analog to the exhibition, I see it exactly, exactly the same way. It's very often about super density, and actually one of the shows, I mentioned Cities on the Move earlier, that's a show which traveled here to Denmark, it came to the Louisiana Museum about 15 years ago, uh, and we did quite the same thing, we tried to do a show which was not about representing a city, mm. but which was about creating many different narratives in a sort of a way of, uh, of super density, and it leads us back also to the production of reality. I'm very fascinated by this idea, you know, could an exhibition actually, you know, produce a new city, which is what we ask in a way. We see this on the move. And Edouard Glissant always said, you know, he wanted to actually, his books to produce institutions. He felt we need to change the world. So he first of all created the Institut, you know, Martinique, which is actually a, a kind of a Black Mountain College, a school which was very influential in Martinique. And then he wanted to do a museum of all worlds where he wanted to basically bring all his ideas of the archipelago into, into an institution. And that, of course, leads me to one thing I wanted to ask you, Salman, which we discussed before in the green room before the talk, which is this idea that sometimes books can produce museums. I was yeah. just with Orhan Pamuk in Istanbul a few months ago, and he wrote the book which actually produced the museum. Mm. And in your book, The Golden House, there is talk of a museum. A museum. Yes. Of I, I was very, I actually, one of the things that has been most enjoyable about the publication of this book has been the fact that people coming to talk to me about it, including journalists from New York City, have been puzzled about whether the museum really exists or not. <laughs> and it's called the Museum it's, of Identity. It's called the Museum of Identity. Uh, an is, obvious museum to build in is, these times. Which is a museum whose time has come. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if it doesn't exist, it will exist next week. But would you like to be the director of that museum? No, no. We were discussing that. No, no. I have no directorial skills. But also, you are the director of a museum, Hans Ulrich, and I'm sure you can easily hand one more. You seem to be able to hand everything and be everywhere at one point. But would you like to be the, muse the, the curator of a museum of identity? I think it's, uh, you know, it's Salman's idea, so it's, uh, it's his, it's his, ah, it's his museum, but I do think <laughs> it's interesting in relation to what we said before, you know, because Glisson said something else to me. He said, in the end, the idea of a museum, and that's something, you know, we try to do every day at the Serpentine in London, I'm the artistic director of the Serpentine, and we try to bring the world into contact with the world, you know, so to bring 
some of the world's places into contact with other of the world's places. And so in a way, it's about multiplying the number of worlds within the museum. Mm -hmm. And that's how I understood your yeah, idea, yeah. because yes. that's what your novels do, no? Because, the, well, I, as I say, you can, identify, you can describe identity in a very broad way. So, so, in, so in a museum, many different aspects can be brought in. You know? For example, one of the statues in the imaginary museum of identity in the novel is the statue of an Indian deity um, called Ardhanarishwara. And what that is, is it's a, a god that is half male and half female. And it's a very ancient idea, and very often sculpted with a vertical split. You know, that, that, that one side of the stone statue is male and the other side is female. Um, and this, there's, of course, there's a legend about how this comes into being, but the fact is that in the very ancient heart of Indian mythology and culture, you have this idea of, uh, of, of gender being something complicated, you know, and not necessarily simple. You know? mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's strange that India has become so conservative in these matters now, you know, whereas actually in its own history, it is incredibly sophisticated about it. And so that's something that a museum can do. It can say, look, this is an idea that is three and a half thousand years old. And, and here is the physical thing. But also the museum prompts an idea that you can choose yourself, your own identity. You yes. can go to a museum and get inspiration, sort of. <laughs> I see at least one of your characters does to get inspiration to what kind of identity he wants to choose for himself. You have actually, at one point, had to choose a new identity oh, for yourself. Oh, yeah, but that was not for artistic reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you had to choose a name. I think that must have been quite hard. How did you find that? Well, it was, you know, it was used in a very limited way. It was, this was, a, you know, during the time when, when there would have been policemen everywhere there, mm. um, that I had to have a, a, a pseudonym to, you know, to rent prop houses to live in and so on. And, yes, I mean, I, the reason I... That the pseudonym was Joseph Anton, which was uh, made up by me out of the names of Conrad and Chekhov. Ah. Um, and, and, and the reason I made it the title of the memoir was exactly to suggest to readers how strange it would be if you were forced to give up your name. You know, um, and uh, of course, the idea of the pseudonym is not new in literature. It's you know, many people have done it, but. But to have to do it for these reasons, it feels very strange. And, and what I thought is that, you know, Conrad was such a great writer of the secret world. You know, he was a great, uh, you know, the secret agent and so on, you know. Um, and Chekhov is such a great artist of, of isolation. You know, three sisters yearning for Moscow, you know. Um, and I thought in some way they were both talking to me at that, in, those, in that period of my life. And so that's why... It ended up, and of course, literary critics being what they are, when the book came out, there were people who said, huh, thinks he's Joseph Conrad, thinks he's Anton Chekhov. <laughs> well, he's not. Well, I think what's interesting <laughs> is that you did choose a place of belonging that was in yeah. literature. Yeah. In the world of fiction, somehow, I mean. Well, I think a lot, of writers, a lot of writers would say... And not one that was attached to no, a yeah. place. Yeah. I think a lot of writers would say that they have a deep feeling of belonging to literature and to language, mm. you know? And I think that, yeah, me too. Is that something that resonates with you from the art world? Because can art be a kind of refuge for those who have difficulty with where they belong? 
social statuses, gender issues, nationalities, ethnicities, cannot be a sort of refuge for that. Yeah, I think it's very, uh, it's very similar. I mean, it's just the great poet Etel Adnan. I think we have a clip, so maybe we can yes, see Yes, can we see that first? And could we skip clip number 5B? This is the great uh, Etel Adnan, my friend Etel Adnan, the poet and visual artist, and she says exactly that's what art can do, that's what literature can do. And when I asked her the question last time in Paris, she said, you know, the world needs togetherness, not separation, love, not suspicion, a common future, uh, and not isolation. So that's kind of her answer to this question of belonging to art belonging to literature, and her entire life has been, you know, being both a poet and a painter, and what you see here is basically her contribution to my daily Instagram, you know, project, because I never knew what to do with social media and with Instagram, and at a certain moment, I was in the house of the artist Ryan Tricartin about five years ago, and he downloaded the app, you know, on my phone of Instagram, <laughs> and then mischievously, and then also posted to all his many followers that I had joined Instagram. So I was kind of stuck, you know, and I needed to kind of come up with something. And then I sort of thought again about Glisson, and I thought, how could we do something which at the same time, you know, engages in a global dialogue, and at the same time resists the homogenizing forces of globalization? Because in a way, it's really for me a daily toolbox. I, I believe, you know, as Tarkovsky said, we need rituals in our world, and so I have many rituals, and one of my rituals is that whenever I wake up in the morning, no matter when, the first thing I do is I read 50 minutes of Edouard Glissant. And this is kind of an application. So I thought, you know, handwriting and doodling is disappearing, and Etel said it, and I was also in the house of Umberto Eco. I made a visit, a last visit, you know, in his amazing archive and library with him, and he said he's so worried because calligraphy disappears, handwriting disappears, what can we do? So I suddenly thought, wow, this is the solution. I can actually do a movement. I can basically, on Instagram, you know, create a movement where every day I post a sentence or a doodle by a writer or by a visual artist and, you know, and celebrate handwriting. And you said to me, uh, in one of our mails you wrote, in a way, I feel that Instagram has become a kind of home for me. Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure if it's, if it's a home, but it's definitely the home you know, of this project. But then paradoxically, uh, it still always leads to books because I'm so connected to books. So at the <laughs> end of the day, it's just a pretext to do a book. Yeah, I mean, I think this question of whether art can be a, a place that you belong to, I mean, I, 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 I think yes, but I, I just think I wouldn't use the word refuge because that feels like a, ah. an escape or a hiding place ah. from, from the world, which I don't think art ever is when it's good. You know, I, I think it's always engaged with the world. Um, but I do think that, there are, that it can't just be, you know, I think there's something too precious about saying that you only belong to art. <laughs> You know, um, I mean, that, that a lot of garbage comes out of that idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I find that there are places that in my imagination, I just, I return to in, in a way involuntarily, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and you seem to always come back to places as well as yeah. a starting point of your novels. One yeah. isn't based in Florence or at least has Florence as yeah. a pivotal point. One is Mumbai, I mean, like, then there's New York. I mean, like there are... There are like a couple of tiny neighborhoods in, in Bombay where I grew up. 
like 12 or 13 houses, you know, um, on a hill, um, which is where I spent my childhood. And, and, um, and somehow they keep coming back, you know, this, this tiny little patch of the world, you know, from, from which it seems that I find myself constantly, you know, making things come out. You know. And the houses are very strange. They were built by an Indian property developer who was very Anglophile. Mm -hmm. And so the houses have very super English names. They're called things like, the house I grew up in was called Windsor Villa. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing less. And there's another house just down the street called Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> no, Christmas Eve is the house in which Christmas Day never comes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, and, you know, there's a dozen of these houses on this little hill, and I find that my characters keep, seem to be living in them. You know, a lot. So I do think that there are these tiny places that, that can be just unusually inspirational just because of the accidents of your own life. I think that must resonate with you as well, Hans. Like you did in the beginning of your career, at least. Once you fled Switzerland, you also came back to do some... Fled is a, maybe a stupid word here, but you looked for new horizons, definitely lived in a night train from... <laughs> <laughs> from teenage years, but also found a place on a hill to be a place of home? Yeah, actually, my first exhibition happened in my kitchen um, <laughs> because I had always, as a student, yeah, I had always books in my kitchen. So the artist Fischli, I thought, this is weird, we should make the kitchen a kitchen, and then they made an exhibition. Uh, and that la show lasted three months and had 29 visitors, <laughs> and, uh, and it became a rumor. And so, so, yeah, so it did start actually in an apartment uh, in, that, in that sense. But for me, it's, it's kind of interesting because Christian talks about the rock, and I was always very inspired by, you know, Sils Maria and uh, the eternal return to Sils, Sils Maria. Sils Maria is a place in Where the... I did one of my first shows in the Nietzsche house. It's where Nietzsche wrote Zarathustra and, you know, where he had this epiphany and it's a place where so many writers went. It's a strange oxymoron because it's uh, basically, you know, in the mountains, but you have also the light from the south. It's the light of the south meets the light of the north. And I returned often to, to that place. But I think I, I agree with Simon that, that it's not about a refuge because I don't believe that we want art to be a refuge because I think the opposite should happen now because I think society needs art more than ever before. And I think that we actually need to kind of find ways to, to take away barriers more so than create refuges and uh, ref to create refuge. And, uh, and in a way, I wanted to say two things about that. The first thing is that uh, John Lathan and Barbara Stevini had this idea in the 60s that they wanted to do an art displacement group. And they said basically that every company and every corporation, every government should have an artist in residence. A poet, a writer, an artist in residence. And then, you know, we'd have a better world. And I still think that that's a beautiful project. We did that at the Serpentine. We started by having actually the artist Pedro Reyes in City Hall in London talking about ecology, and we believe that that needs to be reactivated. We need to bring art into society. And I think, you know, the other day I came back from a trip and um, uh, very early one morning to London, and the taxi driver dropped me in Kensington Gardens. I had to go to the office. It was 6.30, 7 a.m. So he obviously assumed, you know, I would work there because I was out of opening hours. Um, and he said he wanted to tell me a story because he always wanted to talk to someone who works at the Serpentine. So I, you know, switched off the engine and started to tell me the story of his daughter. And that they actually, you know, went last summer to Kensington Gardens and went on a walk. And all of a sudden, his daughter ran into the pavilion. And of course, that's possible because it's open doors. I mean, you have to tell us first the pavilions. Could we please get a picture? Um, so we'll be the Frida Escobedo. 
So yes. we're building pavilions every, every summer because we love this idea that you know, we have a new institution basically every summer on this little piece of land in front of the Serpentine. And this summer, it will be the young Mexican architect, Frida Escobedo. She will do this courtyard structure with water and mirrors. And it will be very much about the connection between her you know, belonging to an idea of a Mexican courtyard, but also her connecting to London, connecting basically uh, to the context of London. So she negotiates that space. And so the pavilion has open doors, it's in the middle of the park. And so, you know, his daughter, to come back to the story, just ran into the pavilion and he had to go and fetch her. And I said, but, you know, why? He said, and I would never go to a museum. I said, why would you not go to a museum? He said, because it's not for people like me. So, but he said, because you have open doors, you know, she ran in anyhow. <laughs> and the reason he wanted to tell me the story is, and it's interesting, I think, in relation to the question he discussed, because, you know, art can have this transformation. It can transform us, as literature can transform us. And he said his daughter was totally transformed by this experience, and she's reading now architecture books every, every day, and she wants to become an architect. You know, and I think we need to bring art and architecture into society. Yeah. It's very important. I, I, while you were talking, I was just thinking about this idea of, of sort of embedding artists in commercial in industries and businesses and so on. I, I don't know, I think I find it kind of a terrifying idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, of course, a lot of writers have jobs, you know, and I mean, I, for example, I spent a lot of my early life working in an advertising agency mm -hmm. um, and writers work in all sorts of places. But I'm not sure that this idea of embedding art in, com in commerce works that well. I mean, I just reminded me of long time ago in the 80s, the, the Volvo Motor Car Company decided that it wanted to commission a series of short stories mm -hmm. from the most prominent writers of the time. And the stories did not have to be about Volvo motor cars. Um, they could be about anything. And the, the idea was to run these as prestige advertisements, double page spreads in newspapers with just a little Volvo logo at the bottom right hand. And they were offering a lot of money for then. For 1982, they were offering like 10,000 pounds, which is like 100,000 um, pounds. And they approached, you know, Milan Kundera and Italo Calvino, and, and everybody said no. <laughs> and and the, 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 my favorite story, because my publisher in England at that time had the job of trying to make this project happen. And uh, the British novelist William Golding had just won the Nobel Prize at that time. And so Tom Mashler, the publisher's name was, Tom wrote to Golding and told him this. And, and Golding wrote back, and he said, Dear Mr. Mashler, as the beggar said to me, outside the souk in Marrakesh, not enough money. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and Tom wrote back to him and said, well, what would be enough money? You know, and Golding replied, the beggar didn't say. <laughs> and yet, I mean, even if we don't want the art to intertwine that much with maybe huge global companies, art still has that um, opportunity maybe to uh, help individuals transfer their own social status going into a pavilion, coming out as someone else than you were before. Uh, I chose actually a clip uh, which we can maybe see, number four. 
from a story that you mentioned in your book, Golden House. I'm sure it's uh, well, well known to the audience here. It's from, oh, yes. you know, that character? Uh, obviously, Hans Christian Andersen, yes, Danish yes. storyteller. Uh, and this is from a movie made by Yannick Hansen that tells or retells in a different way the story of uh, the shadow. And I was thinking of you, Simon, why you chose to include it in your book. What is it that fascinates you about this character? Har vi måske kendt den anden siden dengang i Odense? Men du kender ikke din plads. En skygge skal gøre, som den terror gør, ikke andet. Det er nemlig rigtigt. Hold op i to. Det har vel lov til at komme frem i livet. Ah, det bliver galt. Jeg slukker lyset. Hmm. Why did you choose to include uh, well, skyggen? Well, I, I, I really love this story, and I come back to it many times. Um, the way I first came across it was that I was approached by the, the singer Tom Waits, who wanted to make a musical oh. from this story. And, and he asked if I would work with him on it, and I said yes. But then it, it never happened, because I think they were unable to raise the finance and so on. Um, but first of all, this is not a children's story. You know, this, this is not like The Ugly Duckling. You know? um, it's a very dark story in which the shadow, later in the story than this point, the shadow becomes detached from the man and goes off and, com problems. and comes back a year later, very sophisticated, very cultured, <laughs> and in a way, like a man, and, and, and decides to supplant the real man. You know, the, the man is going to marry this princess, the princess prefers the shadow, and the, and the real man ends up being executed while the princess and the shadow get together. I mean, it's an amazing story. It's, it's a story that you could imagine coming from Kafka, you know, um, as much as from Hans Christian Andersen. You know? So, um, yeah, and that idea of the self and the other, the question of your shadow self and how it, what connection it has to your self-self, you know, and... And how it detaches as well from what it belongs to, yes. from all so that it came from the social status yes. and everything it wants yes. to leave behind, how dangerous that becomes. And then comes back in a malevolent way. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, it's a, a brilliant short story, and I, I, I've returned to it more than once, actually, as, as something that I've been thinking about when, when I've been writing. I know you have an exhibition coming on in the Serpentine Gallery about artificial intelligence. Uh, not about, but using as well artificial intelligence. And I was thinking, is that the ultimate sort of uh, way of using uh, this, a new tool that is completely detached from any personality, any attachment to the world, uh, to create new art? That's kind of what the Skygge did for, in this story for Hans Christian Andersen. And yet you were invited in to your gallery. Yeah, it's actually a project of, uh, of Ian Chang, and uh, he developed a character called Bob, Bag of Beliefs, and uh, you can see it you know, evolve every day on, uh, on the website of the, of the Serpentine, there's also an exhibition. Uh, and of course, it led to this idea of basically, uh, for the first time, an exhibit you know, which has a nervous system. So uh, it's a completely different experience than when you go and encounter an artwork, uh, usually where basically, in the case of Bob, in the case of Ian Shank's show, uh, the artwork can either want to dialogue with you or it can ignore you. 
And it was very interesting, we read all the entries in the visitor books, you know, some entries say, you know, Bob was amazing today, some entries say Bob was grumpy. So it's a very different experience uh, mm. and, a, and a new form of experience. But I was thinking to go one step back, you know, in terms of this idea of the exchange, you know, with others, because we wanted to show a clip which we can't show, kind of just after this clip, because the dialogue was somehow out of sync, something has gone wrong, it's almost like, um, a shadow situation because we had the image of Edouard Glissant and then it was almost the voice like the, was different. the voice was the shadow. It was very strange. <laughs> it was almost like because we wanted to run it right after this and it sort of ran out of sync. And what I wanted to show you is really, you know, Glissant talking about Sartorius because for those of you who haven't read Glissant, a great way to begin in relation to the theme, you know, of identity, of belonging, is this novel uh, Sartorius. S-A-R-T-O-R-I-U-S, Sartorius. It's a novel Eduard wrote in 1999, and it's one of the most beautiful books I ever read, because it's basically a description of the utopian Batutu people. So it's, you know, a people who are utopian, who don't exist, and they derive their identity not from their own genealogy, but solely from being in constant exchange with each other. So basically the identity is, you know, the relation. The relation is the identity, the exchange. And it's very interesting because it poses the question also of this very strange image we had at a certain moment of Henri Sala, which we didn't explain because we had it because of the caption. But Henri Sala is actually an amazing artist and he uh, uh, has worked a lot uh, actually with, you know, moving image. Uh, he's the artist in residence in my Instagram account. He posts mm. sort of on every week a different clock. <laughs> so he's like, a, you know, different forms of time. Um, and in a kind of an interesting way, the, the question there was about the trembling. You know, the title included the trembling. And Glissant talks about trembling, about quivering. Is that the word in English? Trembling or quiver, quivering, yeah. Mm. Um, because it transcends kind of established systems of thought. So to quote Glissant, the all world trembles the all-world trembles physically, geologically, mentally, spiritually, because the all-world is looking for the point, and now comes the point, it's looking for the utopian point, where all the world's cultures, all the world's imaginations can meet, where all the world's cultures and imaginations can actually hear one another. And I think that's also very important, because the 20th century uh, was a century of many manifestos, and uh, I think the 21st century might have to do also with more listening to each other, then proclaiming loud manifestos. So these are these utopian point also where we can meet and hear one another without dispersing or losing ourselves. And that's what, you know, Glissant in, in this wonderful book, Sartorius, defines as utopia. Utopia is a reality where one can meet with the other without losing himself or herself or themselves. Well, I, okay, it's, it's quite good in conversations like this that one should disagree. <laughs> Please, kindly <laughs> uh, disagree. Uh, I, I, I've always had a real difficulty with the idea of utopia. You know, um, there are no utopias. You know, the, these perfect worlds don't exist. We only have this particular imperfect world. You know? and, and it seems to me more interesting to explore that than to dream of fantasies that can't happen. You know, um, I mean, when I was studying... <laughs> <laughs> You know, when, when I was studying history at Cambridge a hundred years ago, it's actually terrifying, it's actually 50 years this month that I graduated <laughs> from university. <laughs> That's really scary. <laughs> but I remember one of my history professors saying to me a thing that I've not forgotten. He said, 
The question, what if, is an uninteresting question. <laughs> he said, it's hard enough to understand what actually happened. <laughs> and, and <laughs> and he said that the job of the historian is to try and understand what has happened. Mm. To ask what might have happened if that didn't happen is a stupid question because the other thing didn't happen. <laughs> you know? So, you know, now there are all these shows and films about what would have happened if the Nazis won the war. Mm. Well, the Nazis did not win the war. <laughs> so, useless question. Um, maybe becoming more useful as <laughs> right now, but let's not go there. <laughs> um, no, so my, it's very strange because, you know, a lot of my writing has been described as having something to do with the fantastic, you know, but, but I'm always been, I've always felt that it arises from the real, you know, and, and that the use of surreal is, the use of surrealism in general is most successful when it has roots in the real. You know, um, whether that's visual surrealism, cinematic surrealism, I'm thinking of, you know, the films of Buñuel and Salvador Dali, you know, for example, Chien Andalou and L'Age d'Or, um, which are surrealist films, but they arrive, arise out of a real understanding of human nature, you know, and, and uh, for me, that's what's interesting. For me, what's interesting is to start with the real and never lose sight of that, you know. Um, and then, you know, let the plant grow in any direction that it feels like growing, mm. you know. Um, <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I'm not, you know, I'm not so sure to which extent we, we disagree or don't disagree. Because in a way, for me, I, 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 I completely agree with you that we want art to be in a sort of an utopian space. But, but my kind of approach to the theme has always been what Jonah Friedman calls, you know, concrete utopia. Uh, also, when Ernst Bloch, because it's interesting, because Ernst Bloch always talked about utopia and kind of Adorno got irritated, and at some point Adorno asked Ernst Bloch, you know, what do you really mean by this word? And they pushed against the wall to finally, you know, give a definition. Uh, Ernst Bloch gave a very short answer. He said, something is missing. And, and for me, you know, sort of the idea of utopia is a very pragmatic one, it's a very concrete one. Because as a curator, you know, I think very often, there is this danger that we squeeze artists' practices, you know, into a box. You know, we give a theme, or we, you know, and it's really, really boring to do that, that art would illustrate the curator's idea. So I've always, when I'm, I'm with artists, which is which I, what I do every day, you know, I would ask artists, you know, what is your unrealized project? You know, what is your dream? And what is a project which, within the parameters of society, you cannot do, and what you would like to do, and maybe with a little bit of effort actually could happen. And so I'm mapping, you know, these unrealized projects, I've mapped about 2,000 of them so far. Go ahead and ask him. And uh, Yeah, exactly, and so I'm very interested that we know nothing about, we only know about architects' unrealized projects, they publish them every day, yes. and end up, we, we know nothing about <laughs> visual artists, you know, poets, writers, unrealized projects. And I've always wanted to ask you yeah. if you have an unrealized project. Yeah, I actually had, a, I had an idea which I proposed to a, a magazine that, that they never did anything about, um, which was that maybe, I thought, said maybe lots of writers have ideas which they also may feel they're not the right person mm. to, to write that idea, you know? And I said, you should have a, a message board where writers can pin ideas that they think are good ideas but that they don't want to write. <laughs> but maybe somebody else wants to write it. You know? so, and I mean, the famous, most famous example of this in literary history is the 
I mean, it's a little bit apocryphal, the story, but the story that Pushkin invited Gogol to his house when Pushkin was very famous and Gogol was just starting out. And, and Pushkin said to Gogol, I have this great idea for a story, but I can't write it, but you should write it. And then told him the plot of Dead Souls. You know, and Gogol had the brains to go away and write it. <laughs> um, but I mean, whether that story is true or not, I think it's kind of 50-50, but still, that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that idea that writers that, or artists of any kind can come up with an idea which they also know is not for them to do, you know, um, but somebody else might. But can I, I, then uh, a black women, uh, a female writer from, say, Fune, <laughs> pin up a story that then a white Caucasian man but from... Might, but you might take the story somewhere else, you never know. It's just, just, you know, it's just an idea board, mm. is the idea. You know? So that would yeah. once and for all free us maybe from this yeah. having to have belonged in one place in order yeah. to be like, I mean, I had entitled a, to write it. I had an idea, I've never talked about this, I, I had an idea for a 30-minute television comedy series. We'll do it. Uh, yeah, which was... Which was The, to be set in a gay divorce agency. <laughs> you know, like a, a, a company of lawyers, gay lawyers who specialized in gay divorce. <laughs> Because, of course, the consequences of legalizing gay marriage <laughs> and is that there will be a flood of gay divorces, right? And it would be, it would be a good business. And, And so you can have like a regular team of lawyers who are your series regulars, and then individual stories come in every week. And I thought I'm not the right person to write this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there we're back again to have to at least have some touching ground with the themes of the stories yeah. that you tell, yes, and right. not be completely detached. So there you had one more unfinished program. I want to play a little game with you in the end as well. Because now that I didn't do a presentation of you at the beginning with any of the usual denominators, I was wondering if I could make you say four words that would describe Salman Rushdie to you without using nationality, gender, <laughs> status, And the same task goes to you. Maybe we should ask the man of words first. But you know what we should do? I love kind of playing games because I think, you know, it's wonderful that with conferences one comes up with new rules of the games and, uh, uh, and we could maybe add another rule of the game because I think that is a question we need a minute to think about. Mm -hmm. And it's always very wonderful. Silence is really important. Uh, and one of my first interviews I did was I went to visit the very old philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer in... Um, in Germany, and he, he was more than 100 years old, and we were alone here in his big house and recorded this interview, uh, and all of a sudden he fell asleep. So, so I was really super anxious, because I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't possibly wake up the great <laughs> philosopher. I was just waiting uh, and waiting, and so after about 10 minutes, you know, the telephone rang, And then, like, he answered, and he said, Gadaman, he was perfectly aware of what had happened. He said, yeah, I'm in an interview. And he looked at me, and he looked at the camera, and he said, you know, you will have a great difficulty to transcribe my silence. So, so as this is really difficult, what you're asking us, mm, I know. maybe we should have a minute of, you know, or a few minutes where, okay. where Simon and I can sing. Talk about something else. Let's talk about something actually, else. Peter Hu, the great writer, in a talk with Tracy Emin, did that yesterday. I won't try to repeat what he did because he actually made us all meditate for a minute. But let's just take one minute of silence to think of what five words 
to describe five, your conversation. I thought it was four. Oh, sorry, four, down to four, that's sorry. Better. Won't change the rules that much. Four, one minute, four words. All right, well. I'll look at your recorder. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. No. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Well, I just thought since we're in a, in a circus tent, <laughs> I would say a creative circus master with great shoes. <laughs> you can use that title. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I didn't have enough time. This is really difficult. And, you know, words are not my medium. Uh, Exhibitions are my medium. So, and it's kind of interesting because I'm always thinking about how we can actually, and that's my unrealized project, could one actually make an exhibition of literature, you know? Uh, because in a way, uh, I've worked with science, I've worked with architecture, I've worked with art, but, and we are discussing that a lot with um, Adam Thurber right now, you know, could one actually make an exhibition? So maybe this exhibition will answer it. Uh, really difficult for me to find four words, but, but definitely it's a polyglot polyphony, uh, which is vital and dense. Say it again, a poetic? <laughs> a polyglot polyphony. So Salman's masterpiece, this is amazing books, are a polyglot polyphony, which are vital and dense. Oh, oh. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Salman Rushdie and Hans Ulaikovic, thank, thank you very much for thank coming you. today. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.